Hi, I'm Jason Wachab, founder and CEO of My Buddy Green, the best-selling author of Wealth, and your host for the My Buddy Green podcast, where I'll be bringing you deep and insightful dialogues with some of the greatest minds in wellness. If you like what you hear, please give us a five-star review, comment, and share with your friends and family. And don't forget to visit us at mybuddygreen.com for your daily dose of wellness. Thanks and enjoy the podcast. Before we dive into today's episode, I want to take a minute to talk supplements. As you guys probably know, these days there are so many supplements on the market offering different benefits, but fish oil is one of the ones you'll hear about the most, and for good reason. Pretty much everyone, regardless of age or activity level, can benefit from taking a fish oil supplement daily. That's because 75% of Americans don't get enough omega-3s, the main component of fish oil, in their diets. Omax 3 is one of the cleanest fish oil brands on the market, and now they're offering MBG listeners a free box at tryomax.com slash mindbodygreen. Omega-3s can do everything from improve mental performance and boost mood to protect against coronary heart disease and promote better athletic performance. But you want to make sure you're getting it in its purest form. You need to be really selective when it comes to choosing a fish oil supplement because rancid oils full of fillers can actually do more harm than good. Omax 3 is obsessive about sourcing and production and their product is 93.9% pure omega-3s. To put that number into perspective, they encourage consumers to try what they call the freezer test challenge. Basically, if you freeze any other omega-3 supplement, it will get cloudy because of all the filler. But an Omax 3 soft gel remains clear. It's that pure. We've partnered with Omax to give you guys an insane deal. You'll get a box for free when you head over to tryomax.com slash mindbuddygreen. That's tryomax.com slash mindbuddygreen. Omax 3 comes with a 60-day money-back guarantee, so you have plenty of time to try it and really feel the Omax difference for yourself. My wife Colleen and I prioritize eating healthy, but between running our own business and spending time with our daughter Ellie, we don't always have time to go grocery shopping and cook all the delicious plant-based meals we want to eat, which is why I'm so glad that Hungry Root is sponsoring today's podcast episode. Founded in 2015, Hungry Root delivers healthy convenience to your door, making it easy to eat healthy when you're super busy. Meals only take 10 minutes to prepare, and each one includes fresh-cut vegetables, mouth-watering sauces, and there's so much variety. They have 75 different dishes, so we definitely never get bored. Even better, all of their meals are low in sodium and preservatives and sugar-free. The only issue? We're guilty of hitting their almond chickpea cookie dough just a little too hard. Hey, what do you expect? It's delicious. Sound good to you? Use code MBG to get $25 off your first two deliveries for a total savings of $50. Hey, everybody. I just want to take a quick moment to thank you all for listening to the podcast and to say that we want to listen to you. So if you have any questions, any dream guests, we are all ears. I would love to hear from you. So ask me anything and stay tuned for the answers or your dream guests on this very podcast. Send your questions to podcast at mindbodygreen.com. That's podcast at mindbodygreen.com. And I look forward to hearing from all of you. Thanks so much. And let's go back to the podcast. 
Max Lugavere is a filmmaker, health and science journalist, and the author of the New York Times bestselling book, Genius Foods. Become smarter, happier, and more productive while protecting your brain for life. Max has contributed to various media outlets, including Fast Company, CNN, NBC News, The Today Show, and of course, Mind Body Green. Max, welcome. Thanks for having me. So congratulations on the book, Genius Foods. Thank you so much. A New York Times bestseller. A New York Times bestseller. Congratulations. Thank you. Yeah, it's a thrill. It's been so wonderful to see people uh, embrace the research presented in the book in such a big way. And really, to to reach a different audience has yep. been super important to me. It's not... Uh, you know, it's not like typical brain books out there that are really kind of like doubling down on the doom and gloom, fear sure. tactic marketing. You know, this is about how to live better in the here and now. So what I love about you is you're not a guy who, you know, picked up on a Bloomberg terminal machine and was like, you know, brain health trend, must write book, get copy, like, let's do it. This is a very personal thing. And I've known you for years now. And this is personal and it and goes back to your mom. So talk to people about your mother. And Yeah. So I, um, you know, my background is in journalism, uh, in non-traditional media. I had a, I used to work for Al Gore. I was one of the main hosts for his TV network current. And um, I really was sort of a generalist there. I likened myself to having been a stem cell, undifferentiated. And, uh, you know, when I left Current to try to figure out where I was going to go with my career, having these media credentials in my in my back pocket, it was that, at that exact moment in my personal life where I started spending more and more time in New York City, where I'm from, and more time around my mother and with my two younger brothers. And we all started to notice at a certain point that my it had seemed as if my mom's brain's processing speed had been dialed way down, like downshifted in a, in a pretty significant way. Um, and that coincided with a change to her gait that she wasn't even fully aware of. Me and my brothers were, you know, talking amongst ourselves and we were like, what, what happened to the way that mom's walking? It seems like what was norm, what would, what had been previously a normal stride had sort of shortened to more of like a shuffle. And we noticed that, um, you know, when we were at, at home with my mom, one of my favorite things to do is to cook and I would be cooking with my mom, which is one of the ways that we would spend time together and, and catch up. Um, whenever, when I would ask her to pass me something like the salt in the, in the overhead cabinet, it would be quicker for me to, to walk across the kitchen and grab it myself than to have her respond to that command instantly. It was almost as if my mom suddenly had the brain of a much, much, much older person. Mm. And, which, you know, when, when you're talking to an elderly person, you kind of automatically intuit that they're going to respond not as quickly, right? Because processing speed is one of the first um, cognitive uh, domains to really be affected by typical aging. So when you're talking to a much older person, you expect them to not respond as – their reaction time is going to be much longer than that of a younger person. How old is your mom at this point? She's 58. Okay. So for my mom's reaction time to be so dramatically affected – um, I mean, it left us all scratching our heads because I had no prior family history of dementia or anything like that. So at a certain point, I realized I had to go with my mom and literally sit in the doctor's visits with her to try to come to some sort of understanding as to what was going on. And it was at the Cleveland Clinic in Ohio where for the first time my mom was diagnosed with a neurodegenerative disease. She was prescribed drugs for both Parkinson's disease and Alzheimer's disease. And my own ignorance about either of these two diseases really uh that weekend i remember just 
kind of caved in on me and it was the first time in my life I'd ever, I'd had ever had a panic attack. Um, wondering if my mom was going to die, what this meant. I'm the oldest child in my family. So I've, I've always been really close to my mom. And at a certain point that emotional, uh, trauma kind of, um, leveled out to, you know, more of like, a. Uh, you know, I, I had gotten used to it. Like I think humans are so good at doing, um, we habituate to any emotional state over time, but I really became, um, unable to focus on anything other than trying to understand to the best of my ability, what had led my mom down this path, uh, in terms of her health, what had shifted between my grandmother's generation and my mother's that led to my mom developing this mental monstrosity while my grandmother at the time was 94 and cognitively sharp. And my hunch was that it had something to do with our diets and our lifestyles. You know, we, and I talk about this in the book, we ate for a certain way for hundreds of thousands of years that led to the evolution of the modern human brain. And then about 10,000 years ago, we turned our backs on that diet. And over time, our brains shrank, losing the volumetric equivalent of a tennis ball. We became essentially slaves to a handful of crops that we could domesticate. And that really paved the way for nutrient deficiencies, for a loss in bone density, um, and that was the first agricultural revolution about a hundred years ago. We went through the second agricultural revolution. My grandmother was born probably just before that. And that really is what paved the way for the fact that our food supply today has become saturated with processed foods. Mm-hmm. And these are the kinds of foods that I grew up on, that my mom grew up on. And Thankfully, I mean, you know, I, this was, I began this, this research about seven years ago. I've been able to completely fix my diet from the diet that I grew up eating. But this is, I think, problematic for many people that still are hooked on the foods that we've been told for so many decades are good for us, which in actuality, the opposite is true. So what did you start to learn in this research? You go down this rabbit hole. Well, I mean, oh my God, where to start? I know a lot of it's in the book, which everyone has to pick up. Great book. Thank you. Um, you know, I think, well, so it's, it's, there's a myriad of factors. We were talking before the podcast got rolling about gluten. You know, I think, um, gluten is in the zeitgeist these days. I don't think gluten is the sole smoking gun. I think, I think there's so many things, uh, that I like come that into play. Line. Yeah. I don't think gluten is the sole smoking gun. It's definitely. <laughs> You're going to make a lot of people happy listening right now. Yeah. Well, <laughs> because the thing is, I think it's not a, it's a protein. Look, I've interviewed the main leading researcher on gluten autoimmunity, Dr. Alessio Fasano. Sure, I've been Harvard, to his, yeah. yeah, been to his lab. And, you know, it's a protein that no human can properly digest. Nonetheless, I mean, our food supply has become saturated with grain and seed oils, which are highly toxic to us. I mean, and toxic is a term that I don't use lightly because it gets thrown about so frequently um and almost uh callously but or carelessly I should say but I um yeah canola oil corn oil soybean oil these oils are so damaging in part because of the fact that they all contain trace amounts of trans fats which we know there's no safe level of trans fat consumption right. this is due to the the deodorization process to make sure that these oils are scentless and tasteless so that food manufacturers can literally squeeze them into any kind of food product they want. So that production process literally creates trans fats. Again, there's no safe level. Even uh, tiny amounts of trans fats are related to worse memory function in young, healthy people, reduced ability to remember. Um, they also contain dangerous compounds called aldehydes, 
which um, affect your mitochondria, the ability of, of these the power plants of your cells essentially to create energy. Um, and they're rife with omega-6 fatty acids. I mean, omega-6 fatty acids are essential to life, you know, part of a normal immune response are the precursors to our body's inflammation pathways. But today we're consuming omega-6s in a, an order of magnitude higher than omega-3s when in reality we're probably meant to consume them in a in a ratio that's more like one-to-one. One. And we can tell this because right. when you look at a properly raised um, animal, for example, which is a major source of omega-6 fats and, and omega-3s in the modern human diet, the ratio is about one-to-one. Whereas if you feed a cow grain, which is not what a cow actually wants to eat, there's way more omega-6 fats than omega-3 fats in its fat. So, I mean, it's, it's that skewed ratio of uh, inflammatory fats that we're eating really is the product of our, of our modern food environment. So as we talk about brain health, and we'll say, you know, glu- gluten's not the smoking gun, but perhaps it's a, it's a problem. Mm-hmm. What are the other big problems? You mentioned trans fats. Like, what are, what are the other problems? What should we stay away from? Yeah. I would say um, added sugars for sure, as well as, uh, you know, foods that don't necessarily look like sugar but become broken down immediately to sugar as soon as we put them in our mouths. So grains, um, dense sources of starches, um, you know, rapidly digesting carbohydrates went from being essentially in the hunter-gatherer diet. They had, they had cameo appearances. And today they're given <laughs> starring roles. In our diets, because the average American consumes about 300 grams of carbohydrates, usually from ultra-processed foods, but also, I mean, if you're building your diet around grains, which for so many decades we were advised to do, you know, the USDA food pyramid, eat 6 to 11 servings of grains per day. I mean, that is a constant onslaught of blood sugar being funneled into into your system that your pancreas, by way of insulin, then needs to play cleanup. Um, constantly throughout the day. And that's problematic because chronically elevated insulin might be, might be a contributor to 40% of Alzheimer's cases. The Journal of Alzheimer's Disease two years ago published that 40% of Alzheimer's cases might be owed to chronically elevated insulin. I mean, it plays a number wow. of, yeah, damaging roles in the body. Um, I mean, it's making us fat at the very least, but, um, but yeah, I mean, the, these added sugars and starches and grains and things like that. I mean, I don't think that they're, again, I'm not dogmatic. So I don't think that they're, I don't think that brown rice or white rice is toxic. I just think that we're overeating these foods at a time when we're more sedentary than ever before. And, you know, we're very few of us are hitting the gym, doing high intensity exercise, putting on muscle you know, so this glucose, we have a very limited ability to dispose of glucose. And so when we eat a huge brown rice bowl for lunch or we eat a huge bowl of white rice or pasta for lunch, that glucose has nowhere to go but to our fat tissue. And it does that by way of insulin. And when insulin is elevated, insulin is like a one-way valve on your fat cells. So when insulin is elevated, calories can go in, but they can't come out. So this is problematic because you're not giving your body the ability to burn fat body's very good at storing fat. It stores fat because it ultimately wants to burn it, but we're not letting our bodies ever burn that fat. And that's problematic come beach season, obviously, but that's also problematic because our brains love to use fat for fuel. Right. And our brains are only given that chance when insulin is low. But today, the fact that you know 60% of our calories come from ultra-processed foods, which are rich in carbohydrates, 
Um, our brains are never given the ability to do that. In fact, our diets have become Sam Henderson, who's a ketone. He researches Alzheimer's disease, brain metabolism, and especially um, the role that ketones play in brain health, which is a, a byproduct of fat metabolism. People have heard of the ketogenic diet. Mm-hmm. He's called our modern diets keto deficient. And that's, um, you know, supposedly uh, one of the most damaging aspects of the modern diet. Right. So what should we be eating? What are the genius foods? What are the good foods? Yeah, so I make it really easy in the book, Genius Foods. And I talk about mechanisms. I talk about why these foods are so good for you. But really what I wanted to do is rather than continue to beat people over the head with things that they know that they shouldn't be right. eating, especially your audience, Jason. Right. Like your audience is super savvy. You know, people know that, uh, you know, Oreo cookies and Cheetos are not great for you. But I wanted to highlight the foods that evidence says in a, in a really sort of um, strong way that these foods can benefit brain health, make your brain work better in the here and now, um, and also help shield it against aging and, and disease. I kind of wanted to co-opt the term superfood mm-hmm. and, and really highlight genius food. So wild salmon is definitely one of them. Um, you know, it provides the building blocks to create healthy new brain cells. We now know that the adult brain can grow brain cells up until death. You stimulate neurogenesis when you exercise, but you want to make sure that when your brain is like, okay, let's, you know, let's, uh, get this new brain cell production into high gear. You want to be able to facilitate the most appropriate building blocks for that. And wild salmon contains DHA fat, which is one of the most important structural components of the, of the human brain. I talk a lot about grass fed beef. Mm -hmm. Um, that's probably one of the, one of the more controversial, uh, tips in the book. Um, I don't think that the vegan diet is, uh, appropriate for optimal, uh, brain function. In, th- in fact, I think that, you know, red meat when properly raised, um, contains a number of, uh, really important nutrients that help facilitate brain energy metabolism, um, that help, uh, can mitigate depression. There was a, a great study out of, uh, Deakin University in Australia that found out of a thousand women, those that did not consume the the recommended three to four servings of red meat per week were twice as likely to suffer from a depressive disorder, major depressive, major depression or an anxiety disorder, twice as likely. And they were also at increased risk when they consumed more than that as well. And I checked the study was not funded by the beef industry. Um, you know, it's a, it's a potent source of carotenoids, which, which can help the brain perform optimally vitamin B12, obviously, um, creatine. There's a, a special kind of fat found in, in grass-fed red meat called CLA, which I think is uh, mm-hmm. probably b- very beneficial. Um, I talk a lot about avocados. Um, so do you guys? Avocados. Love avocados. Yeah, I mean, you post an avocado on Instagram these days; it's like instant, twice as many likes. We had Walter Longo on the <laughs> podcast, and he was he he, he was <laughs> he made the case that. It was a funny moment in the podcast. He said, I said, avocados are, are, are great, right? And he was like, well, we don't maybe know that. There's never been a, a civilization of people who consume the, the quantity of avocados we're consuming. So <laughs> technically, we don't know how good they are yet. We'll see. He was having fun. I was like, whoa, whoa, whoa. It's like you just told me there was no Santa Claus. <laughs> like, hold on. That's hilarious. Yeah, I mean, but avocados the, are still good. Yeah, no, I mean, on the on the one hand, he's right. Does that mean that? I mean, is lack of evidence evidence 
to the fact that it's harmful? No. Right. You know, just because there's a lack of evidence, I think you've got to really, you can't wait for that one study. You've got to look at what it's made of. I mean, you could point to the PrediMed study, which was performed out of Barcelona, Spain, which found that a high fat diet and particularly foods that are high in monounsaturated fat compared to a low fat diet really seem to boost the cardiovascular health and the cognitive function and brain health of a large population over, I think it was about six years consuming on the one hand, a Mediterranean diet supplemented with added nuts. On the other hand, a Mediterranean diet supplemented with a liter of extra virgin olive oil per week. So that tells you that sure. eating a high monounsaturated fat, um, phytonutrient-rich diet is very good for you. And when you see that, I mean, it kind of stands to reason that an avocado would be just as healthy, you know, as that, um, at the very least. Avocados have twice the potassium of a banana. They're, you know, again, a potent source of carotenoids, which we know is the consumption of these carotenoids is related to uh, healthy brain aging. Um, great source of fiber, um, monounsaturated fat. So, yeah, I'm a, I'm a huge fan. I try to eat a half to a whole avocado every single day. I do like one to two. One to two, yeah. <laughs> I'm bigger I, than you, though. Yeah. So. <laughs> You've got some height. Yeah, I do. Um, so avocado, so wild salmon, grass-fed meat, avocados, what else? Yeah, blueberries. Um, blueberries are related to reduced brain aging by about two and a half years. Low-sugar fruit full of anthocyanins, which actually accumulate in the hippocampus um, and help shield it against brain aging. And in animal studies um, have really been shown to improve uh, memory function which is great. Dark leafy greens. I talk all about how every single day you should eat a large fatty salad. Yep. So, I mean, not only is that a great um, way to get in your extra virgin olive oil, which is another genius food, um, but consuming a bowl, a large bowl of dark leafy greens every single day is related to reduced brain aging by up to 11 years, according to a Rush University study. So, I'm um, you know, looking every day to get some kale, spinach, and arugula. Arugula in particular along with beets, are uh, great sources of dietary nitrates, which is really important for the healthy functioning of your blood vessels. So in my book, I talk about all of the best research on um, heart disease risk and really how to make sure that your blood vessels stay healthy. This is really important. I mean, mo most people on the surface would be like, what's you know a chapter on heart health doing in a book about the brain? Well, right. the brain is fed nutrients by this network of microvessels that if you were to take out of your head and stack end to end would stretch 400 miles long. So this is a very delicate network of blood vessels that are supplying the fuels and nutrients that your brain needs to function properly. Um, in fact, the second most common form of dementia is vascular dementia, which is essentially caused by dysfunction, um, basically strokes in the, in the microvessels sure. that, that supply food to the brain. So arugula is a great food to eat for that. For someone who is vegan or slants vegetarian who, you know, maybe doesn't eat beef or maybe has a very little salmon. What do you recommend in terms of supplements where it's just, they're just not going to have it and that's fine. Yeah. I mean, so obviously vitamin B12 is important. Um, but that's the, that's the only essential nutrient that we know that you're not getting on a, on a vegetarian diet. But I implore people to think outside of the box and to consider nutrients that are called conditionally essential. Uh, we only know about a handful of these nutrients. What essentially conditionally uh, essential nutrients are, are nutrients that by not eating them, you're not going to develop a deficiency disease. You're not, you know, for example, if you don't consume vitamin C, you're going to develop scurvy. If you don't get, right. if you don't eat vitamin D, you're going to develop rickets. These are deficiency diseases. So conditionally essential nutrients, there's no uh, deficiency disease that you're going to develop by not eating them. But 
by eating them, you're going to perform better and you're going to feel better. And there's just a handful of them that we, you know, some researcher somewhere was able to find the money to study. And I highlight a few of them in the book, one of them being uh, creatine. Mm -hmm. So creatine is found in red meat. Um, it's a big bodybuilding thing, protein it, powder. Yes, yeah. it's a huge uh, athletic performance supplement. You can buy synthetic creatine. Um, but it's also vitally important for the human brain. Um, I didn't know this before researching the book, but we actually produce creatine in our own bodies. I mean, obviously, if it's found in red meat, we probably have it in our own, in sure. our own meat, right? Um, so we produce it in our bodies, and it's critically important for brain health. It helps recycle ATP in the brain. And they've done research where they found that when vegans and vegetarians, i.e. low creatine consumers, people that don't consume red meat, supplemented with it, their cognitive function improved. Interesting. And this didn't happen in omnivores, which suggests that there is a brain saturation point, that by eating just a little bit of meat, you're hitting that point for the brain, but that vegans and vegetarians are not consuming enough creatine to optimize the way that their brains function. So I would say, you know, maybe consider supplementing with a little bit of creatine, but I also think it's important to point out that that essentially what that what that causes us to do is to play a sort of cat and mouse game with with specific nutrients. Sure. And I don't think that that's really optimal from a from a health standpoint because we didn't evolve with single nutrients. We didn't evolve with supplements. You know, we evolved with food. And like I said, you know, we have a handful of these conditionally essential nutrients that I can point to. But there's probably a myriad of others that we have yet to even name that are found sure. that are found in whole foods. And so when we cut out large food groups, particularly food groups that we likely consumed for the majority of our evolution, I think it does a disservice to our brain health. I'm not I don't engage sure. in the moral argument at all, but um you know, because there's there's obviously a moral argument, but um but I think I, I also think that morally we we have a service to provide ourselves and that is to put our oxygen mask on first you know and so when it comes to healthy cognitive function i don't make any uh sacrifices so what role does lifestyle play if we move on from food sleep stress movement yeah environmental super, health all those things super important um yeah i mean sleep <laughs> is sort of like sleep lifts the tide that essentially causes all the boats in your harbor to to uh to lift because it really allows you the hormonal fortitude to make dietary choices. I mean, changing one's diet is, is among the hardest things to do, right? But when you're well slept, you're given the hormonal fortitude so that um, you really get to make decisions and r rely on your willpower less. I mean, willpower goes out the window on just one night of poor sleep. Right. Um, we also know that when you're sleeping, your brain is clearing itself of these proteins that can aggregate over the course of the day that can clump and form the plaques uh, associated with Alzheimer's disease. But when it comes to just making sure that you are literally performing at the top of your game and able to make the choices that are going to facilitate your best self and your healthiest lifestyle, sleep is a non-negotiable. Um, exercise. I talk a lot about exercise, um, you know, and really separating fact from fiction. I think a lot of people, when they think about, um, you know, the, the best forms of exercise, they think about going to the gym and getting on the treadmill and burning calories. But I think one of the most important things about exercise actually has nothing to do with the calories burned when we do exercise. It's really about providing a stimulus that is literally like 
sending a text message to your genome to adapt and grow stronger. Mm -hmm. So high intensity exercise, lifting weights, um, resistance training, these are all um, modalities that uh, I really lean on in the book because they found that the same stimulus that's going to cause your muscles to grow, that's going to help you look better naked, also acts on your brain cells to create new mitochondria. This is called mitochondrial biogenesis. It also, high-intensity exercise is one of the best ways to stimulate AMPK, which is a pathway in the body that um, essentially activates autophagy, which is a cellular cleanup mechanism, um, causes your mitochondria to become more efficient, improves insulin sensitivity. As we talked about earlier, uh, insulin, chronically elevated insulin and um, ultimately insulin resistance is one of the, you know, major risk factors for developing uh, Alzheimer's disease. Mm -hmm. So in terms of facilitating insulin sensitivity, which is what you want, high-intensity exercise, weight training, very important. So why do you think people are so interested in brain health? Like it's definitely, it's on the map. People are interested, particularly, you know, young, healthy people. Yeah. Like you and me and younger, I'm older than you, but, you know, people who are are in their 50s or 60s, they're, they're, they're interested. Yeah. Well, I think they should be. I think today, um, you know, if you make it to the age of 85, you have a 50% chance of being diagnosed. It's insane. Yeah, it's insane. It's insane. So it's literally. Yeah. Pro- Perlmutter had the same quote. Did he? <laughs> yes. Yeah. I think, cause I think I talked about that with him on, on his, oh, on his podcast. Maybe. I love it. Maybe he borrowed something maybe. from you. It's okay. I love, I love, <laughs> I love David. Um, but yeah, it's, uh, it's a coin toss essentially. And that's sad. That's tragic. There's no meaningful treatment on the market for Alzheimer's disease. Um, I see dementia every day. My mom, my mom has dementia. I don't want that for my peers. I don't want that for my, my loved ones. You know, today, one in seven younger people between the ages of 18 and 39 have memory complaints. That's not cool. You know, I mean, each one of us, I like to remind people that each one of us is heir to an incredible legacy, you know, honed over millions and millions of years of evolutionary struggle. Each one of us is heir to the flagship product of Darwinian evolution, the human brain. (laughs) It's just incredible. You know, 86 billion neurons capable of something that no supercomputer yet devised is capable of. I mean, when scientists tried to replicate just one second of a human brain's uh, computational capability, it took their supercomputers 40 minutes to do so. So optimal brain function should be a right for every single person. And yet today it's a privilege afforded to too few. And this is because the foods that we're eating, that we've been told were healthy over the past couple of decades, are literally poison to the human brain. The human brain has requirements that are not being met by the standard American diet. And the fact that today we're chronically stressed out, we're underslept, we are, we've lost touch with nature. Sure, toxins. Yeah, our social networks have been replaced by the social network. <laughs> it's just, it's causing accelerated decay. It's causing us to become prone to depression, anxiety. This is why come the weekend, so many of us are prone to essentially extreme forms of escapism. I mean, people are doing recreational drugs, you know, in, in crazy amounts. Not that I have anything, you know, morally against that, but I think it's a sign. Right. The fact that we... You know, we feel so separate and isolated from one another when our brains thrive for connection. You know, we go to these festivals and we basically blast out our eardrums to smash our separateness. But really, at the end of the, at the end of the day, I think we need to. And everyone's at the festival just with their iPhone up. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. It's a it's a sign to me. It's a it's a signal of 
you know, on the surface, I think, you know, will people will say, oh, but it's so much fun. But I think it really comes from the fact that it's because, you know, five days a week for nine to 10 hours a day, we're sitting at desks in isolation, eating lunch by ourselves with no connection other than the addiction that we have to likes sure. and comments on social media. So I think it's just we've created a world so far removed from that in which our brains evolved that they're now struggling to survive. So where do you think this conversation's going? What has you excited? Like, what are the trends? Like, where do you think we're going to be talking about in a year, a couple of years from now? I mean, man, I, you know, I think it's, we're get, we're really getting to a place where, as you mentioned, I think that people want more and it's given rise to a whole new generation of uh, people that are out there really trying to help others see the light at the end of the tunnel. You know, we tend to think about these emotional states, the problems that we're dealing with as being moral failures, right? Like everything from the food supply and the foods that literally drive addiction that, that we now are eating in abundance. We feel bad about ourselves when we, you know, eat the entire bag of chips or go through that entire pint of ice cream. You know, also when we're depressed, we feel as if we did something wrong. Where did we fuck up in our lives, right? right. To lead to this point. But I think people are starting to understand that it's, that these are not moral failures, that, that, that there is something larger than us at play here that's really driving all of this dysfunction in our lives. Whether it's the food manufacturers that are creating these foods that are hyper palatable, that literally are intended to drive over consumption, um, by scientists that are paid a lot more than me, to literally hook people to these foods and create repeat customers to the pharmaceutical industry, which is there to do the same thing, to create repeat customers, to the fact that doctors and physicians are not experts when it comes to nutrition, when nutrition or exercise for that matter, when nutrition and exercise are so heavily related to the prevention of the kinds of chronic diseases that now, according to the World Health Organization, are killing 60% of people. Um, 60% of deaths are, are owed to these non-communicable chronic diseases that food and exercise can in such a large way help us prevent. To depression, we now know that, you know, food can drive depression and it can also treat it potentially. So I think people want more. Thankfully, because of the internet, it's given rise to a whole new generation of what I call healers. You know, I mean, these are people that are not trying to replace medicine. But people um, like you, like me, like anybody with a podcast, anybody with an Instagram account or a social media profile trying to use it for good, right. um, people are really stepping up and saying, like, look, you know, this is not cool. We're, we're here to help each other. And I think that that's, I think that's going to continue. That sense of empathy, compassion, my hope is that that's going to sure. continue. And, and we need it now more than ever. So, I mean, that's you know, maybe wishful thinking, but that's where I see it going. So there's a lot happening in wellness right now. What do you consider to be a trend and what would you consider to be a fad? Oh man. Well, I mean, I hope that fads, you know, I don't know. It's hard for me to say what, what's a fad and what's not. I, uh, well, you were just, we, we, I saw you at Expo West recently yes. and it's like all the new and exciting stuff. Some stuff is really new and exciting and some stuff you're like, oh God, do we really need that? Yeah. <laughs> no, it's a, it's true. I mean, I talk about, um, on my Instagram, you know, food marketing and how, you know, just because something's gluten free doesn't mean that it's healthy. Sure. Just because something's fat free, well, probably doesn't mean that it's healthy. Usually means that it's, uh, it's actually quite unhealthy all natural, these sorts of things. 
you know, these are marketing terms that uh, that really don't serve you at the end of the day. I mean, people should be buying foods that are naturally gluten-free. You know, we're, you know, there are certain food producers that I think um, make really good gluten-free food products. But at the end of the day, um, you know, your best shopping is going to be around the perimeter of the supermarket, sure. you know. Um, detox teas, I think, are fads right. uh, that, you know, usually anything with detox in it makes me kind of want to roll my eyes you know your body is the ultimate detox machine it wants to detox all day every day just you just have to give it the right ingredients to do right. that cruciferous vegetables i talk about in the book they're genius foods um you know they help stimulate your body's own detox pathways very important stuff and yeah i think you know that's why i mean when writing the book i really tried to make it not a diet book but uh but a health like a, a philosophy of health book sure. almost in a way you know um bigger picture so if you could sum up your philosophy, so I, I love Michael Pollan and his quote, eat food, not too much, mostly plants. Yeah. What, what, how, how would you sum up your philosophy? Man, I would say, um, you know, lean on, on foods that are nutrient dense and provide the building blocks that were essential for the evolution of the, of the human brain. I mean, through vegetables, vegetables, <laughs> yeah, vegetables. vegetables, and also, but, but also I think, you know, there is value in properly raised uh, meat, fish, eggs, things like that. Mm-hmm. You know, if you take eggs, for example, an embryo, one of the first structures to develop is the nervous system, which includes the brain. So therefore, an egg yolk is literally custom designed by nature to contain everything required to grow a healthy, a healthy brain. Yeah. And, you know, at the end of the day, I think through the lens of the brain, that really is what facilitates the, the optimal functioning of the, of the body. I mean, you could almost argue that the body evolved literally to carry around the brain. And to, and to really be mobile enough to, to, you know, forage for the nutrients that would help facilitate optimal brain function. Um, cause again, the brain is the flagship product of Darwinian evolution. So my last question, if you could go back in time and give yourself advice when you first began your journey, what advice would that be? Oh man. Uh, I would say one thing that I learned very early on in my career as a, uh, TV journalist um, back in the day on Current TV. Um, it was my first job out of college. One of the most important things that I learned, not immediately, but over time, was that you really always have to be in the service of your audience. And that's something that when I made the pivot to really being focused on health and wellness, you know, I didn't immediately, uh, or it's something that you know, I think it took me a while to figure out on certain social media platforms, for example, and social media is a great way to reach people today. So I, you know, as, as much as I think we we spend too much, too much time on it, um, I think it's a really powerful way of, of getting information out there. And one thing that I've learned over time is that every post really should be uh, in the service of, of your audience. You know, attention is the new oil. It's like the new limited resource. <laughs> and when somebody is willing to give you their attention you've got to really honor that and that's something that i do with every post i'm always trying to make sure that everything that i'm posting is leaving my audience more informed than before inspiring them to a greater vision of life because that's really what i want to do and before i had that realization let's i mean we could talk about instagram you know i was posting pictures of myself that i think many people that in the thought leadership space do they post photos of themselves maybe with like a caption on the photo and I was like, that's really not doing, th- I mean, maybe, the, maybe I'm nailing it with the quote or the caption, but posting a photo of myself is not 
being done in the service of the audience, being done so that I can get that dopamine hit when I start getting likes on that photo. So, I mean, sometimes I'll post a photo of myself. Why not? Because I want people to know who I am, what I look like. I want to have that connection with the audience. But that really made me pivot to really, you know, making my posts way more informational because I was like, what do I want to do? I want to help people. And posting photos of myself is not, it's not really helping people. (laughs) I want to post information. I want to get people to think about food in new ways, have light bulbs go off in my followers' heads. And, um, and that's when I pivoted. And, and since then I've really seen, you know, a major, uh, you know, growth, which to me is just gr- is so wonderful because it means that I'm just reaching more people and helping more people. So I love it. Max Lugavere, Genius Foods. Everyone check it out. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Thanks guys. Mm-hmm.